Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is April 7th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Don't You Forget About Me, MRI Sensitivity for Transient Global Amnesia, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Welcome back to the SGM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. Well, the FOMED world got a little smaller recently. I was at a conference in Maui, and I emailed you about trying to set up this April SGEM out off the press podcast. And you said, hey, dude, I can't do it right now. I'm in Hawaii. And I'm like, what? And I asked you, you know, which island? And you're like, Maui. And I said, what? And then you said, which city? And I said, Waialea. And I'm like, shut up. Turns out we were at hotels only a few minutes apart. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy coincidence. We were like literally minutes apart. Just minutes apart. Um, but it was great to see you. Uh, have a quick drink and uh, catch up. Yeah, man, that was awesome. Thanks for thanks for hoofing it up that little hill in the uh, hot sun. You came in, you're coming in hot, just sweaty and covered in, covered in sunburn because you are a, a, a Caucasian male from small town Ontario burning in the sun. Yeah, as a Canadian, I've got... Um, I got two colors, red and white. So yeah, exactly. yeah I, you, you gave me this really narrow time window to, uh, you know, <laughs> squeeze into your holiday plans. And so I'm like, I got to book it up the hill. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm watching my, my uh, watch is going, are you running now? And I'm like, yeah, oh, yes, I am. You look like a Canadian flag. Yeah, I look like a Canadian flag coming up that hill. Anyways, great to see you, man. Let's get started with this podcast. So what do you got for a case? So a 65-year-old man presents to your emergency department with his wife. She tells you that he woke up normally this morning, but after breakfast, he began asking the same questions repetitively and was amnestic to the answer, seemingly unable to form new memories. He remained completely awake and alert and otherwise appeared entirely well. There was no history of recent trauma, infectious symptoms, or other illness. Transient global amnesia, or TGA, is an idiopathic acute neurologic disorder that presents with sudden onset retrograde memory loss, and it was first described as a syndrome back in 1956 by a couple of independent research teams. And then Fisher and Adams formally described TGH in 1964. The usual presentation is a patient between 50 and 70 years of age who is cognitively and neurologically intact, but asking repetitive questions, unable to form a new memory. Symptoms do not last very long and resolve within 24 hours. The incidence has been reported as 23 and a half per 100,000 people per year and is more common in people who get migraine headaches. And TGA is often precipitated by physical or emotional stressors, pain, valsalva maneuver, hot or cold water immersion, or sexual intercourse. Diagnosing TGA combines items put forward by Hodges and Warlaw and Kaplan. This results in seven diagnostic criteria for TGA. Yeah, I almost got TGA like five times in the last two years, every time they delayed the Top Gun release. Yeah, I yeah we've been waiting. We've been waiting. Massive stressor. So the seven diagnostic criteria are that the attack is witnessed. There's clear-cut anterograde amnesia during the attack. There are no neurologic symptoms or signs during the attack other than amnesia. There are no neurologic physical examination findings other than anterograde amnesia. Memory loss is transient. 
no epileptic features and no active epilepsy and no recent head injury. So there is a diagnostic algorithm that's been published for patients with sudden onset of anterograde amnesia. Included in the differential is transient epileptic amnesia, transient ischemic attacks or TIAs, stroke, metabolic disorders, psychogenic disorders, and post-traumatic amnesia. Now, the workup of TGA can include laboratory tests, EEGs, ECGs, echocardiograms, and advanced neuroimaging. And we will put the algorithm in the show notes. But Chris, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode? What is the sensitivity of diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging, or DWMRI, as a function of time from symptom onset compared to clinical diagnosis of TGA? And what's the reference? Wong et al., sensitivity of diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging in transient global amnesia as a function of time from symptom onset. AEM, April 2022. Yes, this is hot off the press. Let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Adult patients 16 years of age and older with a diagnosis of TGA based on the existing clinical criteria. And what was the intervention? Evaluation with DWMRI at varying time intervals post-symptom onset. And what was the comparison? There was no comparison as no studies of patients without DWMRI were included. And what was the outcome of interest? The sensitivity of DWMRI and diagnosis of TGA. Well, this is a back, two back, SGM hot off the press. We did the March episode at the end of last month. And the April episode is going to be the first episode of this month. So we're pleased to have the lead author on the show, Dr. Matthew Wong. He is an emergency physician and educator at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the SGM, Matt. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good, good, man. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So before we start peppering you here, Matt, with all our nerdy questions and getting into the nitty gritty of your paper, it's always nice to get to know a little bit about our guests. So here are five easy questions. Yeah, we started with um, some easy questions for you. and We thought we'd just add this as a new segment. So here we go. Question number one, if you're taking a holiday, sand or snow? Yeah, but doesn't that that matter if you're taking your holiday in like the summer or the winter, right? Like in the summertime, I generally want to go to the beach and I don't think there's no option to go skiing in the summertime, right? Australia. Well, well. Southern Hemisphere. Or Canada, eh? We could go. (laughs) Have you ever been to the North? But I hear what you're saying. Okay. So what you're saying is it all depends. This guy's going to, this guy's going to be tough with us. This guy's, you know. I love it. I sense it. This is a very very medicine answer we got here. Very intelligent. All right. Next question. Superhero movies, Marvel or DC? Yeah. Again, I want to say it depends. I mean, there's been so many iterations of all the superhero movies so far, like, and there's some real great ones and some real bad ones. So like, you know, I mean, I, I know you got a, you got a Batman thing going on for you. Um, and like the Christian Bale one, I thought knocked that out of the park, but um, I don't know for sure. Absolutely. But you know, I, I don't know if uh, the sequel of that panned out and I, I haven't seen the most recent one with Robert Patterson, but we'll see. Um, so I don't know. I say it, it depends. You got to take a case by case basis. We are, we are going to have an excellent episode here, Chris. All right. This is a really important question, though. I mean, if you know me, you'll know how much weight I put on this question. Star Trek or Star Wars? 
I, I actually don't know what you, what your response would be, but I would say I'm more of a Star Wars fan for sure. And thank you everybody for tuning into this episode of the S Gem. <laughs> Click yeah. all over. All right, all right. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm on I'm on Matthew's side on this one. All right, fourth question: Pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to yuck someone else's yum, but it's definitely not on my uh, my pizza at all. We finally got a straight answer out of Matt. Yes, we dichotomized it, and he gave. Well, I guess you said Star Wars, though. But okay, at least I'm back on your team again, Matt, because. I mean, pineapple on pizza? No, that's a hill I'm going to die on. But the fifth and final question, best decade for music, the 1980s or the 1980s? The 1980s it is then. Okay, great. Now that that awkward part is out of the way, how about you give us the conclusions to your publication? Yeah, it's that um, DWMRI lesions are uncommon in patients with TGA early after syndrome onset, uh, but the sensitivity, you know, the positivity rate of the MRI uh, increases with time. So uh, we include that despite the limited quality of the existing evidence, obtaining an early DWMRI in patients with clinical diagnosis of TGA in the acute setting is likely a, a low yield test. All right, we're going to go through the quality checklist for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies. Chris, we've got six questions. And the first question is the diagnostic question. Do you think it's clinically relevant with an established criterion standard? Yes, it is. The search for the studies, do you think it was detailed and exhaustive? We do think so. Do you think the methodological quality of the primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias? Yes, they were. The assessment of the studies were reproducible? Yep. Was there low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity? No, there was not. And the sixth and final question, the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise enough to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models? No, I don't think so. All right, let's run through the results. They identified 23 studies in their research with a total of almost 1,700 patients who met inclusion criteria. Now, all the studies were case series of adult patients clinically diagnosed who underwent MRI. Chris, what was the key result? The key result was that the sensitivity of DWMRI in diagnosing TGA increases with time. And so we'll put a table in the show notes of the sensitivity for DWMRI from the time from symptom onset with a 95% confidence interval around that point estimate. In the first 12 hours from symptom onset, sensitivity of DWMRI is only 15.6%. It improves thereafter to sensitivities between 66 and 83%, but with very wide confidence intervals for all point estimates. There's also significant heterogeneity between studies. Well, those are the key results. Now it's time to bring back Matt and talk a little nerdy. Matt, are you ready to talk nerdy with us? Lay it on me. All right, Matt, before we get into the nerdy stuff, I would like to say congratulations to you guys for publishing a study that will lead us to performing fewer investigations in the emergency department. I was kind of panicked when I saw this title of this and I was like, oh no, MRIs for everybody. And then I read it and I was like, oh man, this is, this is very nice to see. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, part of the, I mean, part of the impetus for doing it was like, there seems to be a bit of heterogeneity in practice in general. Like, you know, this came out of, Ella was reading a review paper and they recommended an MRI and then um, he wasn't sure if that was actually worthwhile or not. 
And then we started talking about it and you know, we started asking our friends. And I bet if you ask some of your friends, like, what do you do for the workup of presumed TGA? You know, you'll find that some people just observe them until they get better and discharge them. Some people admit them to neurology. Some people get MRI. Some people don't. And there's some people always get EEGs. Um, you know, so there's, uh, it's, you know, there's a bit of a smattering of things that people do. Um, so we wanted to look at it a little bit further. Yeah, that's awesome because I agree. Practice heterogeneity for sure. It's something not something that we don't see often, but when you do, it's uh, it it can be a little bit varied for sure. And it's also interesting to hear the backstory of where the seed for the idea comes from. And it's like, hey, what are you guys doing for that? Hey, I just read this paper or this guideline that suggested, you know, do it. What really is that? What you guys are doing? And then a conversation begins, and here we are with a publication of a systematic review in academic emergency medicine. So let's get to our nerdy questions. I've got the first one, and this was about the number of studies. And it's unfortunate that there was a paucity of data to inform our care. This is not unique to TGA, a lot of areas in medicine. We just don't have a lot of high quality data. And we talked about that recently on the umbrella review that we did. Now, you identified 23 studies with almost 1,700 patients but there were only two studies for some of the timeframes with a few dozen patients. And then the one timeframe that had the largest amount of studies was only 10 studies totaling 539 patients. No, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's the meta-analysis is limited by the underlying data for sure. I mean, you quoted an incidence earlier of 25 per hundred thousand, but yeah, that seems very high to me. I mean, you know, do you think this is more common or less common than subarachnoid hemorrhage, for instance, you know, and subarachnoid hemorrhage has roughly an incidence of like five to 10 per hundred thousand. And to me, like my just all clinical practice, like this seems much less common than that. So, I, you know, I, this is a pretty uncommon condition, pretty rare. So it's obviously pretty hard to study it um, systematically. And to clarify where that number came from of the uh, incident, per 100,000 was for patients over the age of 50. It wasn't for all patients. And so yeah. the incidence for all patients is actually much lower and maybe yeah. more in line with your clinical practice of everybody who comes in. Yeah, I mean, like I, I you know, I've, I've been practicing for eight, nine years. I, I've seen, you know, five or seven cases. because It's a once a year diagnosis, mostly in my practice. I don't know about you guys. I would say like nearly identical. Yeah, like nine years in practice and probably once a year. Okay, 25 years in practice. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's hard to reflect back and, and remember the last case you saw sometimes. Yeah. I mean, they're always distinctive. I, I love this diagnosis. It's one of the most interesting in medicine, I think, because it's just the patient is so well appearing. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. It's yeah, just a come, fascinating diagnosis. They, they come in. Yeah, exactly. And then they just keep repeating the same question over and over and over again. One of the things I wonder about is how many people that live alone have TGA episodes that never are documented or present to healthcare? No, absolutely. Yeah, we don't know what the denominator is, do we? Yeah, because every, every TGA case that I've ever seen gets brought in by a family member or friend or something, right? Because they're just like, well, then all of a sudden they were just asking me the same question over and over. Absolutely. It's not the kind of thing that family members ignore. <laughs> you know, it's very obvious. But then the person just walks in completely fine and asks you the same questions for three to six hours and starts getting better. Anyway, so on to question number two here, Matt. This, this is about the observational nature of the studies that were included. So all of the studies included in this were observational in nature. There were no randomized trials allocating patients to any time frame early or late. 
This limits the conclusions to time being associated with better sensitivity for diagnosis. There could have been reasons why some patients go to an MRI sooner while others receive it later. No, I mean, that's, of course, that's true. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine someone running a trial for, I mean, could you imagine running a trial for, you know, MRI for clinical stroke and randomizing them to like early versus late imaging? I, I, I would presume that there would never be such a thing, especially in a, such a rare diagnosis. But for sure, I mean, there's definitely a large range in terms of like the timeline and the availability to get MRIs. And that may incorporate one like patients who present with, you know, other symptoms or, you know, patients who for whatever reason, the clinical context would seem a little bit scarier or there was other clinical uncertainty and they really wanted to get the MRI to rule out something else, you know, um, maybe those patients got the MRIs quicker. Um, and also just in terms of like operationally, I mean, you know, like some places it's impossible to get an MRI, some places it's very easy to get an MRI. Um, and there are probably some, you know, differences in those patient populations as well based on where they are. Yeah, I think my experience would be they would all be randomized to the late group because if somebody, <laughs> if somebody offers me an MRI like now, it's like, oh yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, I want that. You know, yeah. so it's it, it can. Yeah, be I'll real- take any MRI that's offered to me ever. Yeah, <laughs> really, I can get that test. I didn't think it existed. Yeah, yeah so it is. It is nice when um, we can get those diagnostic imaging tests that we think we need. So uh, it, it would be a study that would not be done early versus late in randomization. It's just a, it's just a nature of uh, the question you're trying to ask and the available methodology that you can actually ethically perform. Yeah. So let's talk about heterogeneity though. This is number three. The heterogeneity is measured by the I squared test and it was very high and I'll define very high as between 72% and 96% for all time points besides two time frames. Why did you decide to meta-analyze this data that was so heterogeneous? Uh, you could have just provided a narrative report. Yeah, I think it's one of those things like, you know, damn if you do, damn if you don't. You know, we included the number um, and included the I-square and provided context and the limitations and the discussion about it. I mean, it's uh, for sure, I don't think people should come away thinking that this point estimate, this number is the gospel, <laughs> you know, there's uh, wide bounds of confidence all around it. And, you know, if there are new research, it would certainly inf- be very informative. So I, I think that it's just there so we can sort of get a ballpark sense of the shape of it. Um, but this is not meant to be definitive for sure. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if you look in the supplementary material too, we break this down, it's more obvious when you look at supplementary material, like which papers are contributing to the I squared, uh, the heterogeneity. And there are a few that are particular outliers, um, but, you know, some of them are more closely together. But sure, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the meta-analysis is limited to the, you know, by the quality of the underlying papers. Yeah, I think you make a good point that the concern is that you, when you do provide a point estimate on something, it can give the illusion of certainty. Yeah. The next question is about table three. This has zero to 12, zero to 24, and 12 to 24 hour groups from the time interval from symptom onset to MRI. Why did you use three time groupings here? I, I mean, the simple answer is we wanted something that could be somewhat relevant for discussion amongst emerging physicians, right? I mean, that is roughly probably the working timeline that most people would probably get MRIs, or at least we would talk about, oh, we can get an urgent MRI in the next day, you know, or uh, we can get one today-ish. You know, I, we just thought that these were functionally, um, you know, good groupings uh, to do. So, yeah, we thought that this was just practical. 
The next three questions are about bias, especially in diagnostic studies. And most of what I learned about diagnostic studies and the direction of bias came from a very influential paper from 2013 by the lead author. So the first question is about partial verification bias or referral or workup bias. This happens when a certain set of patients who underwent the index test is verified by a reference standard. So only those patients who met the clinical criteria for transient global amnesia got the DWMRI. What about all those patients who didn't specifically meet the clinical criteria and therefore would not have got that advanced imaging test? This could increase the sensitivity. No, I, I, I appreciate that for sure. But then, I mean, the other half of it is like, if they didn't have the clinical criteria for TGA, then by definition, they didn't have TGA. They had something else that deserved part other workup. I mean, I think that, you know, these patients uh, were corralled and grouped to be indexed against the gold standard of the clinical diagnosis, which is the still the reference standard. You know, but if, you know, if there's any consolation, though, I mean, the the clinical diagnosis does not include any imaging criteria, right? This isn't something like myocarditis, which the definition includes a positive troponin, right? Where it's incorporated back into it, where it's, you know, preferred and put back in there, where you might, you know, you get a positive troponin that you might prompt a workup for that. You know, the clinical criteria are um, separate and distinct and do not require any imaging at all. Um, and that is still considered the gold standard. Yeah, it is very interesting, uh, a diagnosis like this that is, that has a gold standard of clinical criteria. That's such a dramatic diagnosis. It's true. I mean, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of things in medicine are sort of this way, you know, I mean, half of rheumatology is probably like this, right? I mean, and lots of other things we clinically do, like if you say someone has, you know, pericarditis, or, you know, you would say it's a clinical syndrome of certain characteristics, um, you know, certain characteristics with suggestive EKG findings, or maybe not, or suggestive, you know, symptoms, maybe not suggestive labs, maybe not, but, you know, we're not getting like MRIs in these patients or anything like that to look for enhancement of the pericardium, right? I mean, there are lots of syndromes that are sort of based on a clinical diagnosis, you know, compartment syndrome, for instance, or even stroke, you know, I mean, there are, there is such a thing as DWI negative stroke, although it's rare, you know, but you know, lots of things are made primarily based on symptoms, contexts, uh, risk factors, and physical exam. Well, we don't want to trigger any of our uh, neurology listeners, um, and we've now lost our one rheumatology listener to the SGM. Yeah. So why don't we move on to number six there, Chris? Yeah, let's get, let's get to it. So let's talk about spectrum bias. So the sensitivity depends on the spectrum of disease, while specificity depends on the spectrum of non-disease. So you can falsely raise sensitivity if the clinical practice has lots of people with TGA. Do you know what the prevalence of TGA was in the included studies? You know, I don't know. I went back and I tried to look at it and like in some of the larger papers, but essentially all the underlying papers are what are like large case series, right? They're all patients with TGA, right? There's no patients without TGA in, the, in these TGA papers. So, so they don't include, you know, the number of TGA cases numerator over a denominator of like number of neurology cases in the, that they saw or number of total ER patients or something like that. So they, they, they don't include anything like that. I'm sorry. Well, this gets to the seventh question, and it's again about bias. And you started talking about this when you talked about the clinical criteria being the gold standard. But is it really a gold standard, or is it a copper standard? 
And this is what can happen if the gold standard's not that good of a test. Yeah. False positives and false negatives can really mess things up. So do you have an idea of what the diagnostic accuracy is for the clinical criteria for diagnosing TGA? I don't actually know. I mean, and it is by convention, it is considered the gold standard. And so anything sort of up until now would, you know, it's sort of tautologically like build back into that. But, you know, how good is, are these criteria comparing it to something like, you know, the TEA, the transient epileptic form amnesia? It's hard to say for sure. I don't think that work has ever been done, you know? So it's, I don't know for sure, but by convention, this is all we got. Yeah, no. And, and I, and I really like talking about this stuff where it's, you know, I don't know. And that's the answer. Yeah. That's the best answer that can be given rather than trying to put our nickel down and say, we know the answer. I think it's a much more intellectual, honest position to say, eh, we don't know. Yeah. That's the best we have though. And so that's what we're going to act upon. And as emergency physicians, we're often dealing with low quality evidence, limited information, and yet we still make decisions and move forward. And that's every day of our lives, making decisions with limited information. The next question is about serial MRIs. So I thought this was fascinating that people can get serial MRIs somewhere in the world. So some of the studies in this systematic review use serial MRIs. Can you comment if the results were aligned with the entire group within the meta-analysis? I, I believe so. I went back and tried to you know, look at everything. And I, my, my general sense is, yeah, I mean, the numbers are probably not exactly lined up, as we're saying, because everything has error and bias and everything corporate too, but this is the general trend. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, you talked about sort of the ideal study where the randomized trial be worthwhile, but like, you know, a serial MRI study is probably, if I could do anything, this is what I would want, right? I would want a, you know, a case series of patients with a clinical TGA who I MRI every hour on the hour for the next, you know, four, you know, four days and see how things progress. I think that's what I would want. Just like TPN and put them in the scanner and just run it back and forth for like 72 hours and see what happens. So you've already sort of answered question number nine, because I wanted to throw this out there as someone like yourself, who's looked at all these studies, you've gone through all of these 23 studies and ask you, how would you design the ultimate DW MRI study to evaluate TGA based on what you know now and money, time, resources, no limitation. How would you put that together? I mean, like, it's, you know, it's a weird hypothetical, but, you know, I guess if I had unlimited resources, you'd want something, you know, multi-site, maybe multinational, you know, a large, diverse, you know, group of emergency departments and cohorts of patients uh, with prospective, you know, uh, enrollment of patients with clinical TGA based on strict criteria that were seen by people like right away with great documentation of everything. Um, and then serial MRIs with high functional scanners, you know, um, uh, you know, like one of the things we didn't talk about was like, there is some variability in terms of the kind of MRI you can get, you know, if it's like a 1.5 Tesla, three Tesla, or you have you tweak up, you know, your tweak your machine to be dial up a sensitivity or down or not, you know, and maybe, you know, th th that would be the way that you would want to get probably the best data. You know, a lot of patients from a lot of different places with serial MRIs with the gold standard clinical diagnosis, you know, unlikely it's, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, most of the papers that you saw are, you know, single institution or single, you know, a uh, group like network of institutions that also sort of share common resources, but, um, or like a referral center that takes a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, some, something along those lines. 
Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if we had unlimited resources to ask all these clinical questions that we wanted to have answered? So the last question, Matt, is an open question. Is there anything else you would like the SGMers to know about TGA in general or your study specifically? I mean, TGA is uncommon, but it's certainly something that people are going to counter in their you know, clinical practice if you work clinically long enough. So you need to know about it for sure. Um, the criteria for the diagnosis currently are strictly clinical based on uh, those combined criteria. And, you know, it, it's impossible to underemphasize the importance of like a good neurological exam and a good history and making sure you're not missing something else. Like, oh, this patient also has an arm, you know, uh, paresis or something like that. Like, you have to do a good exam. And, you know, although we often do imaging, you know, it's important to be skeptical of the utility of it. It's not, it's not clear that it's useful. You know, uh, we currently do a lot of these things sort of by default and uh, sort of pro forma. I, I don't want to comment on people's individual institutional practices or anything like that, but, you know, it, we do what we do, but maybe we shouldn't do some things. And I don't know, it's always uh, just important to think about why we're doing things. I think that's a great way to end it. Be skeptical. All right. Well, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, we generally agree with the author's conclusions. Chris, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? Yeah. Urgent MRI for patients meeting standard diagnostic criteria for TGA is a low-yield intervention. And how about giving a case resolution to that gentleman who came in who was presenting with uh, symptoms suggestive of TGA? You perform a thorough history followed by a excellent physical examination, and you then observe him over a period of hours in the emergency department, and he slowly begins to form new memories. You perform an unenhanced CT head and basic blood work, which is unremarkable. He is discharged home with his wife and will follow up with a neurologist as an outpatient. So I know you were a little anxious, Chris, when you saw the title of this hot off the press article that I had picked for the April edition. But how do you feel about it now and how are you going to apply it clinically? I, I love this article. I think it's super useful. Um, I think it is very helpful for teaching as well, just from a you know teaching residence perspective and stuff. I, I mean, certainly even the things like just getting through all those diagnostic criteria and making sure you hit every one of them is so important. And this article does a great job highlighting that and saying that you don't need to go too far into doing more investigation. All right. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? So, yeah, this is always a fun conversation because you're usually telling the caregiver this. <laughs> um, so I say you have something called transient global amnesia or TGA. This condition is not a stroke or seizure or other dangerous diagnosis, and it will most likely resolve over 24 hours. And by the time we're saying this, it's already starting to resolve. You should have no long lasting effects from this. And you also explain this yeah, to the patient's caregiver and give them a handout uh, explaining the same. Should you develop any other neurological symptoms such as weakness, sensory change, speech abnormalities, confusion, or are concerned, just return to the emergency department. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Dr. Steven Steltz from New Zealand. Man, is this guy quick with his answers. He has won so many times by being the first person to correctly answer the trivia question. But this time, he knew that Morton Hellig submitted a patent for the first head-mounted virtual reality display in 1957. That's crazy. There's somebody who made a, a head-mounted VR display in 1957? Yes. What's the question this week? 
This week's Keener question is, what part of the brain is typically affected on DWMRI and TGA? Well, if you know the answer, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive one of the new, cool, skeptical prizes. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on the use of DWMRI and the diagnosis of TGA? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. And what questions do you have for Matt and his team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And don't you forget about, unless of course you have TGA, collecting your CME credits for this episode. If you're a subscriber to Academic Emergency Medicine, you can go to the homepage and get some credit for listening to us. Well, thanks, Matt, for coming on the SGM and talking about your hot off the press publication. Thanks so much, guys. Chris, talk to me, Goose. Can't wait to see you for our long-awaited Top Gun Maverick, often delayed party at my place, Memorial Day weekend, 2022. You can be my wingman anytime, Ken. And to finish the show, Matt, can you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Mercy Talk to everyone next time. Don't